Hello and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is Tom McSweeney with the Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you the most comprehensive coverage of the Irish maritime sector. The fishing industry is in crisis this August, a perfect storm, you might say, faced with the loss of a third of its main fleet. Up to 60 boats are to be removed, broken up, scrapped. The polite word used to describe this in official circles is decommissioning. And it's happening because Ireland suffered so badly in the Brexit deal when the UK left the European Union. Hundreds of jobs will be lost. Coastal communities will suffer heavily. What will be the effect on seafood supplies? Dunmore Eastern County Waterford is the primary fishing port on the South East Coast. John Lynch is Chief Executive of the Irish South and East Fish Producers Organisation. We lose vessels out of the fleet, and we, we, we have a small fleet as it is. We can't really, you know, it's not good to see vessels leaving the fleet because we don't have a very big fleet. We only have uh, just over 200 vessels that are over 15 metres. So it's not good news for the fleet. Probably considering the amount of quota that we lost in the Brexit deal, we're not a supporter of decommissioning, and we also haven't seen the um, the detail of the scheme. We don't know how, how if vessels have to leave the fleet. They should be allowed to leave the fleet with a bit of dignity. And we want to see the, the, the details of the scheme before we make any real judgment on it. Is it going to be a fair deal for the, for the, for the fishermen, you know, that have to leave the industry because of the Brexit loss? It reduces the camp and our capacity and we can't bring any extra vessels back into the fleet because we won't have the capacity to do it. And it'll be hard, like the smaller the fleet is, the more difficult it is to keep the ancillary industries alive. John Leach of the Irish South and East Fish Producers. Processors, retailers, boatyards, suppliers to the industry will all be affected, as well as fishing boat crews and their families, by the cut in the fleet recommended by a task force set up by Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue to respond to the damage done by the Brexit deal. Industry organisations were on that group, but told me there was little alternative to reducing the fleet because the government failed to get Ireland a good deal and because it also failed to force other EU member states to share the burden of Brexit equally. The Minister has welcomed EU approval of an €80 million scheme to pay off fishermen to voluntarily get out of the industry. It will, he said, help restore balance between fishing fleet capacity and available quotas and contribute to long-term viability of the seafood sector and coastal communities. But that's not how Patrick Murphy, Chief Executive of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation in Castletown Bear, West Cork, sees the situation. Surely if you had a priority list, keeping the boats fishing viably, making sure that the fishermen who risked all went out and put their lives on the line, who are an essential industry, now are not deemed to be, you know, high priority enough. Patrick Murphy in Castletown Bay Fishing Port. Neither in the Doyle or the national media has much attention been given to the crisis in fishing. Other EU member states are still being given rights to the biggest catches in Irish waters. And another part of that perfect storm is the cost of fuel. It's quite obvious in fishing ports that boats aren't going to sea. They can't afford the cost of diesel. 
The EU has allowed member states to introduce a fuel subsidy. Other nations have done that. Ireland hasn't. Minister McConnell had what he called a productive meeting a month ago with the fishing industry about the problem caused by the Ukrainian war and told me that he and his department were still assessing the situation. Sean O'Donoghue, chief executive of Killybeg's Fisherman's Organisation in Donegal, warns that it's becoming uneconomic to go fishing. Our message seems to be falling on deaf ears, even though the minister is telling us he's listening. But there's no good listening. We need action uh, at this stage, and we need it immediately. Otherwise, we are we are talking about uh, uh, we falling over the cliff edge here in terms of being totally uneconomic. The vessels will lose their crews and they won't get them back. So this is a dire situation. I know we have a lot of problems in our hands, but we have to get this fuel issue uh, sorted out and we have to be on a level playing field with our other European partners that are fishing uh, alongside us in the same waters. Sean O'Donoghue in Killybeg's fishing port. Sinn Féin spokesman on fisheries and the marine, Patrick McLaughlin, said that decommissioning is another tragic blow to fishing and coastal communities, and truly shocking for an island nation. Indeed, it's difficult to understand the national attitude to the fishing industry. When did you last hear a major statement about the industry from any of the leaders of the three parties which form the coalition government? In last month's edition of the programme, Pat Lawless Carpenter and former fisherman from Ballyfelliter in County Kerry told us of his plan to sail around the world alone non-stop in the Golden Globe race for older yachts without modern technology. The race starts next month from France. His last port on leaving Ireland for the start after two years of preparation was Cork Harbour. At Crosshaven Bortyard Marina, Owned by a sponsor, Green Rebel, I talked to him as he left aboard his 36-foot yacht saga, also called Green Rebel. The great day has arrived. How do you feel this morning? Oh, I'm excited now. Looking forward to getting out the gap. How has the journey down here been? You've had various weather? I had great sail down. I was delighted. I had headwinds as far as mizzen head, and she went well. When I was pushing her a bit, not over pushing her now, but I had two reefs in the main for a while, and one reef in the main, and no reef in the main, and full work in Genoa. And it was my first time using that work in Genoa. You can see it's the inner furling sail there, and it really went well. How have you found the sail handling? You've a pile of gear on her. Oh, fine, I can do the whole lot from the cockpit. All the lines are led aft, except for the top reef in the main. If I have to put, there's four reefs in the main. If I have to put the top reef in, I'll have to go on deck. And you'll be handling a kite all on your own? Yeah, the size of a half of a tennis court, yeah. Nothing seems to phase you. You're really, really anxious to get out there. Yeah, well, I, I will. I have four spinnakers, and some are smaller, and I will use them. In the race, you have to use them as a race, like, yeah, but I will use them carefully as possible like we're not allowed socks or anything like that so it is it is one thing like you you could you could get in big trouble with a, a spinnaker as you know yeah so it's it's something to be worked on and minded and done properly yeah and has the last few days given you a good indication of how she sails oh yeah fully loaded i i came down here in less than 24 hours from dingle which was good with headwinds i was delighted with that yeah and fair sailing to pat and his big undertaking 
person close to him was an unusual craft, Stella Maris, it was called. Unusual because its hull looked to have something like the shape of a Galway hooker or a curragh in its construction. It was about 20 feet long, an open boat with an engine and a cover over most of its hull, forming a cuddy of canvas. It's the last of a 200-year tradition of English boats, and another solar sailor had brought it across the Irish Sea and was heading for West Cork. Michael Hart told me about his boat. Stella Maris is a Northumbrian Cobal, built in 1971, and the sort of one of the last of a 200-year tradition of building cobles in Yorkshire and in Northumberland. And she worked off the Northumbrian coast for the last 50 years. She was built 51 years ago. And uh, I bought her out of fishing three years ago. And I brought her out from East Anglia, from Suffolk. And I'm headed down to West Cork. How long did it take you to cross on her? Uh, well, I came the shortest route through up the Thames, through the Kennet and Avon Canal, down to Bristol and uh, along the Welsh coast to here, to Kilmore Quay, and then down to here. And I hope to be down in uh, Roaring Water Bay in a couple of days. You have a cuddy, uh, but she's fairly open. She is. It's, uh, I think open's good. Open-heartedness, open boats, open eyes, open minds. It gets you close to it all. And all on your own? No, I've had friends along all the way, mostly. I've done the Irish coast so far on my own. Michael Hart and Stella Maris, of which you can see a photograph, on our website and Facebook newsletter. One meets wonderful people in boats, but what would you think of this comment about sailing? Sailing is one of those funny things. It is a wonderful thing to do, but it can be astonishingly boring at times. Doubtless there are people who would agree with that view by Michael Chapman Pincher. I've also heard yacht racing described as about as interesting as watching paint dry. But from my own personal experience, it can be quite exciting, demanding and tough in conditions that are ever-changing. Nothing of the level playing pitch, beloved of other sports and sailing. And if you cross oceans again from personal experience, it can be even more challenging whether racing or cruising, the latter of which Michael Chapman Pincher did. And he wrote about it in The Long Lost Log, The Diary of a Virgin Sailor. That was when he was a 23-year-old novice deckhand aboard the yacht Gay Gander, owned and skippered by a somewhat eccentric Irishman who was sailing away with his mistress, both escaping from dysfunctional marriages, so they told Michael Chapman Pincher. Amazingly, the book has been published by the son of that skipper. So Michael Chapman Pincher has an interesting story to tell. Very early on, in 1973, 74, I was a bit rudderless, unemployed, and I was also homeless. Um, and I wanted to go to sea. And at the time, I was trying to get into the sort of merchant navy, but I was unable to um, achieve that because I didn't have the qualifications. I didn't have the maths. And so what happened was I went round to see somebody, and uh, he said, my father's uh, looking for a crew to sail across the Atlantic. And I had never sailed before. I had never even been on a dinghy before. 
And uh, anyway, I went down to see uh, John Francis Kearney Farrell um, on a yacht called the Gay Gander, which was moored on a canal down um, in near Exeter. Um, and uh, we sort of agreed that I was going to become crew. Now, I told him I'd never sailed before, but I'm not sure he sort of believed me. I think he just thought that I'd never done much serious sailing. Anyway, so that's how I got on board the boat. And um, we then set across the Atlantic after we'd been fitting out for a month with him and his sailing companion, a woman called Carola. And um, they were, in fact, sort of eloping together. And what happened was we sailed across the English Channel in a mighty, furious storm. And that was when uh, John realized that I had actually never sailed before. Um, but he it was too late to turn back. And he was a good, hard taskmaster and realized that um, I needed to learn on the job. So he set about teaching me and teach, he taught me well. He taught me how to sail, taught me uh, coastal navigation. And then ultimately, as we slipped across the Atlantic, after having sailed down the um, from across the Bay of Biscay in France into Spain, down to Portugal, across to the Canaries, we then set across the Atlantic, by which time I'd had to master celestial navigation. I kept all this information in a diary stroke log. I had the um, path that we were taking and the dates and where we were and the longitude and latitude, etc. And then um, I also kept uh, notes about what was going on on board because at that time there was a great sense of the generation gap. It was the 1970s. Um, there was sort of smell of revolution in the air. There was industrial disputes going on. There was an energy crisis. There was a government in turmoil. So not much has changed in the 50 years since. Um, and then when I got to the other end, I left that boat. I was sort of discharged from service, as it were, and was then again pretty footloose and fancy free and found a berth on another boat, which was going through the Panama Canal up to Canada. And I had, um, had had a holiday romance in Puerto Rico with an American girl. And I managed to lose my log or I left my log in her car when she took me onto this other boat. And from there, I would then set, a, set her across the Spanish main to um, Panama, realizing I had lost my diary and my log. Um, so I started a new one for the next part of the journey. And because there was no way of getting in touch with people then, because telephones and mobile phones and the internet didn't exist, um, I lost touch and presumed the, the log was lost forever. During the pandemic, um, when people were going through things in their houses and turning out cupboards and all the sort of things you did because everyone was in lockdown, she found my log, which she had kept in a memory box in her attic in Florida, which was where she was living, got in touch with me over Facebook. We had exchange of emails, and then she sent me the log back.
um, and the diary. And at that point, a friend of mine said, you must write this because that's the reason it's come back to you. And that I did. And thus I've now produced the book, The Long Lost Log. Being discharged, you thought, more than once by this skipper who turns out to be Irish and related to the publisher of the book. The person that uh, had sent me down to uh, see his father was Anthony Farrell, who I knew vaguely because he was uh, a lodger in a friend of mine's flat. And what I was able to do was I was able to put a lot of background into um, the characters of his father and the woman who ultimately became his stepmother, Carola, um, who was then uh, running away with his father. They had both um, separated from their separate husbands and wives. Also on the boat was a cat called Strider. Yes, Strider was a Russian blue cat. And when I arrived on the boat, um, the cat sort of viewed me with some suspicion because he and John clearly had had a long sailing relationship. I wasn't uh, certain how old Strider was, but he wasn't, uh, you know, a kitten. He was a a mature cat. And Russian blues are extremely um, vocal. And John and the cat um, discussed much. And John would tell him about things and complain about this and complain about that. And the cat would respond in kind. And um, I gradually got to know the cat. And like uh, all cats, um, once they they knew that in Egyptian times they were worshipped as gods, and I don't think they've ever forgotten it, because they have that attitude and auteur about them. And uh, the cat clearly knew that he was higher up the ship's manifest than I was. So um, he viewed me with uh, a certain amount of disdain and later with a certain amount of affection because we spent a lot of time together, particularly on the night watch. But I saw the cat lose a couple of lives, um, got washed overboard and then washed back on board once. And um, he was a very interesting companion to have on a boat. And certainly when you just have two other people and myself, so there were just three of us as a crew, the cat added a fourth dimension um, to all our relationships because the sort of cat could sense when there was tension in the air or when there was weather coming. It was very good at reading, uh, reading the wind, as it were. Three souls and the cat locked inside a wooden nutshell at the mercy of the elements. That's some description. Yeah. Well, it was, um, as I said, having never sailed before, I really wasn't quite sure, um, you know, how big boats should be when they go across the Atlantic or um, really out to sea. So she was a beautifully built 37-foot Lawrence Giles um, cruising yacht, and she was amazingly sturdy and well-built and finely tuned and well-trimmed. But it was small and um, very compact. And so the three of us and the cat, um, you know, we were sort of forced to get along just by the very nature of sailing together and knowing that we were going to be um, together for some time. But we did have some pretty steamy rows about all sorts of subjects. Um, religion, money, all those sorts of good things. 
And you had some frightening experience during the sailing, it has to be said, in the descriptions. Yes, we um, uh, we went into some pretty intense weather. Um, whether we were on the tail end of a hurricane or a um, big uh, cumulonimbus storm, um, I'm sort of now can't quite remember. Um, but it was a very ferocious storm, and we hit a very big rogue wave, and um, we were about to broach um, till John steered us straight through it. But it was uh, a wave that was bigger than the boat. Well, it certainly looked bigger than the mast um, when it crashed over us and we cut through it. So we had some pretty intense sailing. Um, we also were becalmed, which, um, and I don't know which is worse, sometimes at least when you're in the fury of um, a big sea, everything is intense when, when you're just becalmed. It's uh, monotonous, hot, and you get very bothered. The novice deckhand aboard Gay Gander, Michael Chapman Pincher, and his book Long Lost Log, Diary of a Virgin Sailor. It's published by the Lilliput Press. Now here's Anton O'Callaghan with a roundup of maritime news. The arrival of Tom Crean into Galway port was the major shipping story of the past month. The new research vessel for the Marine Institute built at a cost of 25 million in Spain. She is replacing the RV Celtic Voyager, which was Ireland's first purpose-built research vessel that went into service in 1997. Now while Galway will be her base, Tom Crean will be officially commissioned at Dingle next month, commemorating the memory of Kerry's legendary Arctic explorer. And while we're mentioning the Western Port, Defence Minister and Tainishta Simon Coveney said in Galway that it was in the running for a naval regional base being planned for the West Coast as part of the Naval Service expansion. Not surprisingly, that has given rise to local politicians demanding it should be in Galway, though Minister Coveney was careful to say a Western base could be anywhere between Galway and Donegal. Naval headquarters aren't saying anything more, and over on the east coast, there have been calls for an eastern regional base located in Dunleary. No comment on that either. Now, as far as we can establish, there is no plan to move operational headquarters from Hall Bolan in Cork Harbour. Irish ports are operating successfully. That's according to the annual reports of the biggest four, which announced results within a few days of each other. Dublin Port reported overall volumes for the first six months of the year growing by over 10% to 18.6 million gross tonnes, and the number of ships' arrivals increasing to 3,694. Shannon Foynes Port Company reported a strong year for 2021, with record earnings achieved and profits before taxation exceeding 5.2 million for the first time. The Port of Cork reported total traffic of 10.6 million tonnes last year, and an 18% increase in turnover to 39.8 million. It's also looking at plans to expand in Bantry Bay, which is part of its operation. Waterford Port reported operating profits for 2021 of 1.1 million, an increase on 2020. And it has appointed a new chief executive. He is David Sinnott, 
originally from Wexford and now coming to the southeast maritime sector from Germany where he worked for 10 years. He was vice president of product management there at Carl Zeiss Vision International. He would become chief executive at the end of next month. A new Coast Guard helipad is to be built on Inish Turk Island off Mayo for use by Coast Guard air-sea rescue helicopters. The Department of Rural and Community Development is providing 90% of the cost, €375,000. Mayo County Council will pay the rest. Now we reported earlier in the programme how a third of the Irish fishing fleet is to be scrapped because of the impact of the UK-EU Brexit deal on fisheries, where Ireland suffered the worst outcome of the member states. As that becomes ever more apparent, the European Commission appears to be acknowledging the damage done to Ireland and accepting it has to try to mitigate it. So a €20 million Euro scheme to support Irish aquaculture affected by the impact on employment in coastal communities has been approved. IFA Aquaculture, which represents the sector, says that must be introduced immediately. The EU has also approved a €1 million Euro scheme to support fisheries cooperatives affected by less catches for processing due to the reduction in landed fish under the cuts in quotas to which the Irish fleet is now subjected. These schemes underline how badly the seafood sector has been hit by Brexit. Inland Fisheries Ireland carried out 36,379 patrols last year, boosted by its new mobile support unit and Delta seagoing fleet for the protection and conservation of freshwater fish and habitats. The state body says that, as a result, it initiated 103 prosecutions for fisheries-related offences last year and seized 1,261 illegal fishing items, including nearly 14 kilometres of illegal nets. An interesting development at Bordishkiwara. Its CEO, Jim O'Toole, is leaving to return to Bordbia, where he is to become chief executive. He will succeed the CEO there, Tara McCarthy. He had previously left Bordbia to succeed her as CEO at BIM when she left the fisheries board to return to Bordbia, which she had previously left to join BIM. McCarthy is moving to Alltech as global vice president. It employs 6,000 around the world engaged in animal and plant nutrition. Based in Kentucky, USA, it was founded by an Irish scientist, Pierce Lyons. Back to Galway now and the first appearance of a Galway hooker on the Dutch canals this month is likely to create a lot of attention and there may even be links found between the traditional West of Ireland boat and historic vessels in Holland. The Galway Hooker Sailing Club is taking the Lovine, the 97-year-old Gleoetog originally built in Galway in 1925 and which its members restored in a two-year joint project with Galway Sea Scouts to represent Ireland's traditional nautical heritage at Nawaka the Scout International National Water Camp that's held every four years in the Netherlands and attracts 7,000 participants. Colette Fury of the Galway Hooker Sailing Club describes what they are calling as the Lovine Tour. Collectively, as, as the club and Sea Scouts, we're, we're bringing the boat over. Yeah, there's a lot of organising, yeah. There's been WhatsApp groups and phone calls and emails there non-stop for the last, I'd say, two to three months 
just trying to, you know, all the logistics of it, like insurance, and trailers, and ferries, and buses, and cars. She's going by trailer, uh, and she's going to be ferried from Dublin to Cherbourg, and then driven from there uh, to the Netherlands. We're going over to the Eiffelmere, which is uh, it's sort of, but it's kind of like a lake there in, in the Netherlands, but it's it's. It would have been part of the sea, but, you know, they closed it off. It will be set up there. We have a berth organised over there for a couple of days. We have been able to trace links to Dutch uh, vessels as well. And, of course, the Dutch are steeped in maritime history themselves, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. Colette Fury of the Galway Hooker Sailing Club and the Lavine Tour to Holland. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group has announced the return of its popular All-Ireland Whale Watch Day, to be held on Saturday, August the 20th at 18 headlands around the coast. Now, there are no boats involved or bookings necessary. Their advice is to dress for the weather, bring optics and a sense of humour, and leave your pets at home. Further details on www.iwdg.ie events. Finally, the disappearance of paper navigational charts. The UK Hydrographic Office intends to end making paper charts. It says this is because more marine, naval and leisure users are using digital products and services for navigation and sales of paper charts have fallen substantially. Late 2026 is set for the end of paper charts. One is left to wonder what might happen if a power breakdown or a hacker breakthrough happens. And that's your roundup of Maritime News. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. You're listening to the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, all about Ireland's maritime culture, history and tradition. Killaloo in County Clare is very much part of that tradition, which we'll celebrate in the Lua weekend on Saturday and Sunday, the 17th and 18th of September. St. Flannan's Cathedral is an iconic part of the history of Killaloo, the town itself being a major part of the inland waterways on the River Shannon. Paul Fitzpatrick is the Dean's Vicar there, and he's leading the organisation of Lua. It is an end-of-season celebration uh, in which we celebrate very much all aspects of the inland waterways, of the history of Killaloo, um, environmentally, ecologically, uh, taking in the maritime history of our area, and also celebrate the, the life and times of the people of Killaloo. Um, also, it's a, a way of looking at the national calendar of events that are taking place. And I was able to ascertain, in conjunction with um, other people observing it as well, that there was no official end-of-season celebration anywhere. So as a result, uh, we are able to had an inaugural event called the Lua, an end-of-season celebration, which will, if it, if it goes okay, could become an annual event that could be focused very much uh, in our own area. Killaloo would have a huge connection with the maritime sphere anyway, through the inland waterways and the Shannon, of course. Absolutely, Tom. And, and I mean, I, I, I chat to you today as an avid uh, border with my, my, my family, my own uh, history as well, and uh, of, of being a member 
of the Loch Derg branch uh, of the inland waterways, uh, but also to, in, in Killaloo itself, of course, it goes without saying, situated on Loch Derg, on the Shannon, of course, the flow of the, 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 the river, uh, passing from Killaloo right through to Ardnacrusha into Limerick. And it's the a, a, a treasure in our midst. Uh, and it's something I have been echoing and re-echoing over the, the years and decades of something that is an extraordinary resource and treasure which we have uh, really untapped. And it's a way of celebrating something that is so wonderful, unique and brilliant. And of course, Killaloo itself with its people uh, are rooted uh, in this particular history that is ongoing, of course, and is unfolding uh, and... You know that's that's what we're about trying to do this uh, in in September. It complements Tom incidentally so many things that have occurred so far. For example, the Killaloo Music Festival. You have the Brian Baru Festival. We have so many events that are taking place in around Killaloo. Saint Flannan's Cathedral actually has connections, doesn't it, going way back to Brendan the Navigator? Absolutely. Um, I, I am a, a Dean's Vicar in uh, St. Fannin's Cathedral. I'm a Church of Ireland uh, priest and proud to, 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 to be. But, uh, of course, Tom, in, in organising the uh, Lua and end-of-season celebration, I do so, of course, as a member of the, the community and as a, 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 a voter. But significantly within it, of course, is St. Fannin's uh, c- Cathedral that has its roots pre the, the 6th century with Malua or Lua, of course, who was a contemporary of the better known uh, St. Brendan, uh, who prophesied actually the, the greatness of Killaloo and whose church, St. Malua's church, once stood on Friars Island. Uh, the island, by the way, Tom, was submerged in the 1930s during the building of the power station in Ardnacrusha. But the church itself was moved to the grounds of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Killaloo. And of course, we have a great ecumenical connection uh, in, in St. Fannin's Cathedral um, uh, in that we're open to all faiths and, and, and none and, and that we're being welcoming and hospitable is so very important to us. But in the early part of the, the 12th century, Donald Moore O'Brien founder of St. Mary's Cathedral in Limerick, built a church in Killaloo between um, 1195 and 1295. And it was replaced by the present cathedral, which was dedicated to St. Flannan's, uh, an 8th century ancestor of Donald Moore. Some rebuilding work uh, was carried out in the 19th century and a major restoration project took place in the 1960s. And of course, there's continuing restoration with the uh, with our own funding complemented by Clare County Council and, and various grants, of course. Paul Fitzpatrick, who loves his place, Killaloo on the Shannon. Now, would you support a universal declaration of rights for the oceans? Should the oceans be given rights? Lucy Hunt thinks they should. She's a marine biologist who founded Sea Synergy Marine Awareness and Activity Centre at Waterford in County Kerry eight years ago. 
She's also a senior advisor at the Ocean Race, which has launched a global movement, it says, to halt the decline of the seas and protect the future of life on Earth by recognising the ocean's rights. The Ocean Race was formerly known as the Volvo Race around the world, and the next race will start in January. It's a high-powered event of heavily sponsored entries from various countries and crewed by professional sailors. As it crosses the globe, the race yachts will gather and carry petition signatures to be presented to the United Nations General Assembly in September of next year. I first asked Lucy what changes she's noticed in Irish public opinion about the maritime sphere and the oceans in her eight years of running Sea Energy in Waterville. I think there has been a a definite growth in awareness of Ireland's marine life and marine potential. Um, So with the work of, you know, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, the Wildlife Trust and the Explore Your Shore um, group, and then there's been some great Irish uh, marine life documentaries as well on, on RTE and stuff. So, I think there's been a good movement um, and awareness uh, in the last few years. I would say we're getting more ocean literate. Like we work on a lot of education programs here in Ireland as well around ocean literacy. We're definitely getting more ocean literate, but we still have a fair way to go. One of the aspects in that, Lucy, uh, and you're working with, because you work with the ocean race, there's an effort by the Ocean Race, which was announced in Lisbon there at the United Nations uh, meeting, to get more awareness, to get people to understand the oceans and that the oceans have a claim on us to be respected. I know that the, the words rules is probably too strong a word, but a declaration is probably a better description. Is that what's being looked for? Yeah, but the uh, United Nations Ocean Conference, uh, we launched our One Blue Voice campaign, which is all about supporting a universal declaration for ocean rights. So looking at how can ocean rights be recognized in the legal systems around the world. And what we're doing is working with policy experts from around the world, like Earth Law Center, Nature's Rights um, Organization, and and other uh, marine advisors uh, on Uh, a process called the Genova process in which we are looking at bringing a draft declaration um, of principles for ocean rights to the United Nations General Assembly in 2023. And we would hope to have a universal declaration of ocean rights um, passed by 2030. So it would be supported by United Nations um, member states. And we're currently calling it a Universal Declaration of Ocean Rights. That's the working name. And I suppose it's kind of reflecting on what the Declaration of Human Rights is, where humans' rights are recognized. We want the ocean's rights to be recognized so that it can be a healthy ocean and that it can contribute to a healthy planet, healthy humans. This is using a race which is the nonstop, I suppose the toughest professional sailing yacht race in the world that goes non-stop around the world and through the most dangerous oceans. Do sailors then have a particular appreciation of the oceans from their perspective, from being on the water? 
Yeah, and I suppose with ocean rights, it's very much about relationship um, with nature and relationship with the ocean and how we respect the ocean. And so, yeah, it's around the world sailing race. It's often dubbed as the toughest test of teamwork. And um, the sailors are out there, you know, they live and breathe the ocean and they have to know nature and they get to know nature very, very well. They get to know the ocean very, very well. So they have a personal relationship with it. Um, no more than I had as a young child, the, the, the ocean was my backyard and I grew up thinking of the ocean and the coast as part of my family in a way, you know, so that's why I now want to protect it. So in some ways, sailors have reverence for the ocean and, and, and you know, look up to the ocean. So they, they have a, a much deeper story to tell um, when it comes to relating their story about the ocean to to, to many different audiences. So, yeah, we often um, have the sailors involved in our Ocean Race Summit to tell the story of the ocean um, from their perspective and how, you know, the respect that the ocean deserves and, and also what they're seeing firsthand as they're travelling around the ocean. And I suppose that understanding of the sea would go through all the professions to do with the sea, from professional mariners down to fishermen, they'd understand the sea in a particular way because of what they see firsthand. Yeah, I, I believe that there's definitely, the, like, you know, if you're, I suppose we call it, say, sometimes ocean people, um, and, you know, if you're an ocean person, you know the sea in, in, in a different way. Um, obviously, there's people that won't respect the ocean as much, but they see things changing over time and they're fantastic storytellers to bring the ocean back to land. And, you know, we need to listen to these stories that people are telling us and be inclusive of these stories when we're trying to make plans or policy and, and all of that. So I think it's, it's very important to have ocean people engaged in the process. Is this going to be related from the race to the public so that they can take part in it? Yeah, so we have our campaign that we launched at the UN Oceans Conference um, called One Blue Voice. So you can check it out on onebluevoice.net and um, you can sign up. And that really is saying, you know, that you support um, the recognition of ocean rights. You support us going forward with a um, proposed universal declaration of ocean rights to the United Nations. And you support a, a healthier ocean, really. So that campaign over the next year will be, you know, raising awareness of the state of the ocean, um, highlighting how the ocean is vital to all life on Earth. And we'll be doing that through, like, lots of different media from the race itself. And as we stop in our different host cities, um, we'll be raising awareness, but then also online as well. And the, the campaign has been created in collaboration with 11th Hour Racing, who are our founding partner of the Ocean Races uh, Racing with Purpose Sustainability Programme. And finally, Lucy, could we get to a stage where countries such as Ireland would include something like this in legislation? Uh, definitely. So there's, there's many countries around the world that are taking this on. So um, just this year, actually just last week, we had Spain, the Mar Menor, the, uh, Europe's largest salt lagoon, um, has been given rights of nature, so it has been recognised as an entity. 
and will be protected with legal rights like a person. Um, in Panama, it also has happened this year. But um, there's a growing movement in nature's rights. And even last year in Northern Ireland, Straban and Derry City, um, their councils have agreed a motion in recognising the rights of nature also. So that's that's being workshopped now on how that will actually affect industry and, um, you know, the council work as well, what, what everybody's doing around the environment. So it is definitely something that... Um, can happen and is and is being recognised as something that needs to happen as well. An interesting concept, Lucy Hunt there, and you can sign the petition online at onebluevoice.net. That's onebluevoice.net. I'm interested to hear your views on this and the next topic, and you can email them to maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. And this topic is, what rights will coastal communities have about wind farms in their areas? This is what's becoming known as the Special Squeeze. The Seafood Offshore Renewable Energy Working Group has been set up by Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien, to discuss interaction between the seafood and offshore renewable energy industries and other sectors in the marine environment. Captain Robert McCabe, formerly with the Commissioners of Irish Lights, has been appointed chairperson. A. O'Donnell is Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation and he was at its first meeting. The whole area of the, the spatial squeeze, as they call it, and uh, as part of that, um, the sector and had an inception meeting with the new Seafood Offshore Renewable Energy Working Group, and to try and establish some form of constructive engagement and facilitate that between the traditional sector and the offshore renewable energy. You know, obviously, it's a very worrying time for coastal communities, and particularly on the east coast where there's significant areas of the seabed mapped out for offshore renewable energy. And the the international perspective on that is that the co-location of um, offshore renewable fixtures, wind farms and so on, are not consistent with fishing or on the, on the same grounds. It's too early to judge, but in the process, it's, really, it's a really important process and uh, it's really important that the fishing community has moved centre stage in terms of the engagement and to take account of their concerns. Spatial squeeze, a subject about which we'll be hearing more, outlined there by A. O'Donnell, Chief Executive of the Irish Fish Producers Organisation. Now to the island of Inishlar in Clue Bay, where Oda Twombly, Secretary of Kogal Ilona Heron, brings us the latest news and comment about our offshore island communities. Hello, Tom, and listeners far and near. Have you had a chance to get out and enjoy the summer so far? Maybe some sailing, swimming, or kayaking? Or island hopping with lots of gorgeous walks during the day and sublime food and music in the evening? Whatever's your pleasure, just enjoy. Kogal Iran will have its first face-to-face AGM since 2019 on Arnmore Island from 2nd of September to the 4th. The theme of the conference is island housing, as this is proving problematic not only on all of our islands, but throughout the European small islands. There will be a presentation on different community housing schemes, as there are differing solutions across the offshore islands. A speaker from the Carberry Housing Association will discuss their experiences, and it is hoped to have a representative of community housing on the Scottish islands speaking as well. 
A report on the ongoing housing survey will be presented. Housing forums held across our islands threw up many concerns as well as opinions on possible solutions. There are challenges in terms of, for example, availability of year-round housing properties, a disproportionate number of holiday homes, significant numbers of derelict or disused houses, and numerous planning issues, while young and first-time buyers are being priced out of the market. The prevalence of housing issues and the direct effect it has on sustainability led Kogal with Cornelon to enlist researchers from UCC to collect and analyze island data. The UCC team has already produced a significant piece of work on the West Cork Islands housing situation. So this All-Ireland survey will further increase not only knowledge of needs and solutions, but data to back up the need for creative solutions. An update on the island policy document is being prepared by the Islands Division of the Department of Rural and Community Development. This document is vital to the future development and sustainability of the islands, so there is a keen interest in its content. It's important that island youth have a voice not only on their home islands, but with Kogal on a national and international level. Younger islanders have a definite views on the future of their islands, a valuable resource in the future planning of island development. Faroga, the Irish youth organization, included island representatives in their group of speakers to the Joint Committee on Environment and Climate Action to discuss the youth perspective on climate challenges. Youth members will give a presentation at the AGM, not only on this climate meeting, but other activities they have been engaged with. For delegates that arrive on Friday, the 2nd of September, there will be a tour of Aaron Moore in the afternoon, including historic landmarks as well as projects designed to improve the lives of islanders and visitors alike. There will be a group meal followed by a night of music, dance, and crack. We do hope that this will be the perfect opportunity for islanders to meet and catch up. To register for the AGM, see Kogal on Facebook page or speak with your Kogal representative. Lots more happening, so go grab a ferry and explore. But for now, it's Sloan from the islands. Nearly one third of all known sharks are threatened with extinction. And we've reported here about the awful practice of shark finning. That's cutting the fins off sharks and discarding the rest of the creature back into the ocean where they die in great pain and discomfort. It's a practice prohibited in many countries, but still carried out by Chinese boats to supply the market for shark fin soup. For 34 years, the Discovery television channel has only Shark Week to conserve sharks, important to the marine ecosystem as predators. It's a hugely popular television series, which Justin Marr has been watching. The Discovery Channel presents Shark Week. Bringing you face to face with this mysterious creature of the deep. Make the voyage with Shark Week. Next week on Discovery. Shark Week is a television phenomenon. 
Having started on the Discovery Channel in the United States in 1988, it's now American cable television's longest-running programming event. It's bloomed into a cultural landmark in the United States, where it draws in tens of millions of viewers and is now broadcast in 72 countries every year. Its original intent was to promote conservation and correct common misconceptions about sharks using science-based storytelling. But over the years, it's become more entertainment-oriented. Shark Week. It's a bad week to be a seal. This entertainment focus has gotten Shark Week into hot water with the scientific community down through the years. In 2013, Discovery produced Megalodon, The Monster Shark Lives, telling a story about the potential existence of the 50-foot shark that became extinct 3.6 million years ago. Except it was just a story, featuring actors and faked footage. Despite disclaimers, it drew fire from the scientific community for the manipulation of its presentation. The mockumentary was watched by 4.8 million viewers, a record for a Shark Week programme. 73% of viewers responding to a poll carried out by Discovery, however, believe the Megalodon still existed. I said, have I ever told you my favourite thing about summer? Huh? I said, have I ever told you... It's Shark Week, isn't it? Discovery works in partnership with Beneath the Waves, Oceana and Ocean Conservancy during Shark Week, helping to raise funds for each organisation but its presentation of sharks in general has been called into question. Last year, a study was carried out of every Shark Week programme since 1988. It discovered that narration would regularly contain the needless promotion of fear, and episode titles themselves would promote fear and sensationalism, such as Shark Apocalypse, Deadly Stripes, and Great White Serial Killer. The three most commonly featured species on Shark Week programming are not any of the species of greatest conservation concern and most critically endangered species have never been featured at all. There are 500 species of shark. 143 of those are at threat, from vulnerable to critically endangered. Sharks are predators, and they play a vital role in the health of marine ecosystems. By eating fish, they help create balance in the food chain. Species range in size, from the size of a double-decker bus to the size of your hand. Over the past 50 years, Shark populations have declined by 71% in the world's oceans. Many sharks are accidentally caught in fishing gear, as well as caught deliberately for their fins, which are a delicacy in Asia. And their ocean home is also in danger, from climate change warming the water and affecting their habitat, to plastic pollution, which could cause entanglement or be ingested. There are 36 species of shark that have been spotted around Ireland, ranging from small sleeper sharks to the second largest shark in the world, the basking shark. Earlier this year, as we reported on this programme, it was announced that the basking shark was to be given protected status by the Irish government, a move described by Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Basking Shark Group as globally important for the species. While Shark Week continues to be a runaway success, Let's hope that real-world conservation efforts can be as well. Justin Marr reporting on Shark Week. 
And to conclude this edition of the programme, the international achievement of a young Irish sailor must be recognised. 18-year-old Eve McMahon from Hoth Yacht Club in Dublin, who has won the Laser Youth World Championships in Texas, retaining that title as its holder and adding to gold medals, which she also won at the European Championships in Greece and Youth Championships in Holland. That hat-trick achieved in the summer when she also sat her leaving certificate exams. That's some achievement. And with congratulations to her, we end the August edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, the eighth in the programme series. All editions are on our website at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie and there's daily maritime news on Twitter with the hashtag at Tom And there's a weekly newsletter on Facebook and LinkedIn. Our email address, again, is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 87 197 that's 0872-555-197. The show is broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Sound supervision by Justin Moore. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing.